We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Nehemiah chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. These are the heads of the province who dwelt in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah everyone dwelt in his own possession in their cities, Israelites, priests, Levites, Methanim, and descendants of Solomon's servants. Also in Jerusalem dwelt some of the children of Judah and of the children of Benjamin. The children of Judah, Bethiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Mahaliel, of the children of Perez, Messiah, the son of Baruch, the son of Kalhaz, the son of Haziah, the son of Adiah, the son of Jeriab, the son of Zechariah, the son of Shaloni, and the sons of Perez, who dwelt at Jerusalem, were 468 valiant men. And these are the sons of Benjamin, Salu, the son of Meshulam, the son of Joed, the son of Padiah, the son of Kaliah, the son of Messiah, the son of Ithiel, the son of Josiah, and after him, Gabai and Salai, 928. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Senua, was second over the city. Of the priests, Jediah, the son of Jeriab, Jeriab and Jekin, Sarajah, the son of Hekiah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Zadok, the son of Merhajath, the son of Ahidab, was a leader of the house of God. The brethren who did the work of the house were 822. And Adiah, the son of Jerome, the son of Peliah, the son of Amzi, the son of Zechariah, the son of Pasher, the son of Machijah, and his brethren, heads of the father's houses, were 242. And Amashiah, the son of Ezrael, the son of Hazai, the son of Meshulamoth, the son of Immer, and their brethren, mighty men of valor, were 128. Their overseer was Zebediah, the son of one of the great men, also of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Heshub, the son of Ashkram, the son of Heshribah, the son of uh, Bunai, uh, Shabnathai, and Jazid of the heads of the Levites, had the oversight of the business outside of the house of God. Metaniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, the leader who began the thanksgiving with prayer. Bakdujai, I'm sorry, Mekhuiah, the second among his brethren, and Abda, the son of Shemua, the son of Galal, the son of Jeduthum, all the Levites in the holy city were 284. Moreover, the gatekeepers, Echab, Talman, and their brothers who kept the gates were 172. And the rest of Israel, of the priests and Levites, were in all the cities of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the Nethanim dwelt in Ophel, and Zihah and Gishpah were over the Nethanim. Also, the overseer of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, the son of Heshabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Mekah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers in charge of the service of the house of God. For it was the king's command concerning them that a certain portion should be for the singers, a quota day by day. Bethiah, the son of Subel, of the children of Zeriah, the son of Judah, was the king's deputy in all matters concerning the people. And as for the villages with their fields, 
some of the children of Judah dwelt in Kirith Jarba as villages, Didon as villages, Jacobzale and as villages in Jeshua, Malda, Beth, Pellet, Hazar, Shul, and Beth Sheba as villages in Ziklag, and Mekanah as villages in En Rimon, Zorah, Jarmuth, Zenoah, Adullam, and as villages in Lachish and its fields in Ezekiah, and its villages they dwelt from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. Also, the children of Benjamin from Geba dwelt in Michmash, Ijah, and Bethel, and their villages in Anath, Nab, Aniah, and Hazar, Ramah, Giltam, and Hedid, Zeboam, Nebat, and Lod, Ono, and the valley of the craftsmen. Some of the Judean divisions of Levites were in Benjamin. Thank you, brother. Interesting, some of the responsibilities of those who dwell in Jerusalem. Uh, dwelling there came with some responsibility, not just the blessing of being in that city. So thank you for that. Well, as Pastor uh, mentioned, we will be back in First Timothy this evening. And so I invite you at this time to open God's word there to First Timothy chapter 5. We've now, uh, looked at this section twice, progressing our way through verses 17 to 25 in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I've generally titled this section in the letter, Treatment of Elders, and I also noted last time this falls in a broader section that begins back at the beginning of chapter 5, which has to do with church member relationships, how we're to deal with one another in the church in somewhat of a categorical way, first looking at everyone in general, men and women, young and old, then uh, excuse me, then widows. We see this in verses 3 through 16. There's a large treatment of, of how we're to deal with widows there. And then in verses 17 to 25, we, we've looked at how the church is to deal with elders, how they are to treat elders. First, by uh, looking at how they are to treat those who do well in their role of leadership. Paul instructs Timothy, and thereby the rest of the church, to honor elders who are ruling well, to show them extra special honor financially and by means of showing them respect. And then in verses 19 and through 21, which we looked at last time, we looked at how the church and Timothy is to deal with sinning elders, how to deal with sinning elders, how to discipline them. And as we looked at that text last time, we learned a number of things. One, that a accusation against an elder is not to be received, that is believed to be true, unless there are two or three witnesses. And even then, it could still be proven false. There has to be an evaluation of those uh, those evidences, those witnesses, whether they're credible witnesses or not, whether they can be substantiated or not. But certainly, we would say most of the time, if there's two or three witnesses, unfortunately, most of the time, the case is those, those witnesses are true, seems to be the high percentage, would be likely. And so, in that case, then, we, are, we saw that the next thing that they are to do is to address this situation by rebuking the elder publicly for the purpose which Paul says is that the rest may also fear. That is a fear of God, a, fear, a reverence toward God in, in the light of the fact that God deals with sin seriously in the church. And so it causes in a sanctifying way the church to become more like Christ as they recognize that God deals seriously with sin, and thereby the church does deal seriously with sin. And so every individual in this situation is to be introspective, thinking of their own life, 
what sin maybe in my life do I need to be dealing with that's not publicly known, but I need to deal with. Or perhaps you sit there and you think, Lord, help me not to fall into that similar kind of sin because I could. I know myself. And so there is, a, a, uh, there is kind of a light at the end of the tunnel, a positive uh, outcome to a public rebuke in that it causes fear to fall upon the church. Well, we pick up in verses 21, or excuse me, verses 22 through 25 this evening. Let me read those to you, and then we'll address them in uh, more specificity. Paul writes to Timothy here, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Looking at 21, we find Paul's initial exhortation, which is this, do not lay hands on anyone hastily. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily. As we think about this exhortation, we see here that Paul in this context is still talking about elders. The laying on of hands is something interesting to think on. What does Paul exactly mean by this? Well, as we consider it, uh, some have often think, think that you know, Paul is regarding a, you know, the kind of official ordination process of you know, a person being evaluated, their doctrine being evaluated. That certainly is part of it here. But the prohibition here, do not lay hands on, on anyone hastily, has to do with appointing them to the office of elder. And that includes more than a you know, a rigorous formal uh, evaluation of their doctrine. That also has to do with an evaluation of their character, their conduct, how they live their life. The idea here is that there is to be a, a, a period of time, a length of time, before the elder is appointed. Do not, you know, he says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily. The word hastily isn't necessarily just about the time, although it has to do with that. It also has to do with not acting rashly, but taking the time to evaluate them. Why would Paul concern himself with saying this? Well, I think it directly relates back to what we have just addressed when it comes to disciplining elders. What Paul is telling Timothy to do is to avoid situations like having to discipline elders because of sin that existed in their life that perhaps if they had not so hastily appointed such an elder, it would have given time for them to further evaluate this elder and perhaps that sin would have come to light during that evaluation process. And so Paul then exhorts Timothy to to not act hastily. And there's a reason for this, which Paul gives here at the end of verse 22, a reason for this prohibition, which I hope we can see as we look at it here. He says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself Pure. Keep yourself pure. 
if Timothy were to take pause and not act too hastily, it would profit him this, and also the church as well, that they would not be sharing in other people's sins. You might ask yourself, how, how do we share in someone else's sins? You know, isn't every man uh, responsible for his own sin? You know, from the Old Testament, we know that, you know, you know the, the son is not, you know, he's not uh, judged on account of his father's sin. So how could anyone be, uh, you know, guilty or share in another person's sin? Certainly, we, we aren't judged as if we committed the sin. We're not culpable in that sense. Timothy's not culpable in that sense, as if he is the one that committed the sin, and so judgment is to be upon him. Rather, what Paul is saying is here, saying here is that by acting hastily and not allowing a process whereby they can evaluate his doctrine, his conduct, his character, how he uh, rules his household, all of the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, by neglecting to do that and just rashly appointing him to and hastily appointing him to the, elder, as, uh, to the office of elder, if he does this, then in one sense he is sharing in the responsibility of appointing someone who should not have been appointed. And in that sense, then, Paul is saying you share in that person's sin because you didn't show uh, the due responsibility of evaluating him, thoroughly examining him in his life to make sure that there's no sin which would disqualify him from the office. And so there is a very real responsibility and a real uh, a real guilt in one sense that the, the eldership of the church, the church leadership, and even the church as a whole shares in when it comes to appointing an elder. The way that our church is structured, it's not just you know the church leadership, not just the pastor or just the deacons who appoints an elder. It's the whole church participating in this process of evaluating this person, evaluating their life, evaluating their teaching, their skills and leadership, the ability to lead their home well, the ability to live above reproach. You know, we often think about that responsibility as if it lies solely on the leadership. You know, oh, they're the ones that kind of do the evaluation. Certainly, they're the ones, you know, that sit on the ordination council and examine. But really, there's, there's much that has gone before that in evaluating the person. They wouldn't get to that point lest the church had already agreed that, yes, this is a man that's worthy of uh, receiving into the office of elder or appointing to the office of elder. And so it's not just the church leadership then that could share in this person's sin by too hastily appointing them, but it's really the whole of the church that by too hastily appointing the elder could also be sharing in this person's sin or sins. And so, along with this prohibition then of not too hastily appointing an elder, whereby then sharing in this person's sin when it does come to light, instead, Paul positively exhorts Timothy to keep himself or keep yourself pure. What are the means of keeping himself pure? Well, it's by showing patience in appointing an elder, making sure that there's no sin existing in his life that could disqualify him. Now, look with me at verse 23. Paul writes this, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. In just a moment, we'll address this verse as it relates to the whole of the passage. But perhaps as you look at this, this verse, you might think to yourself, man, Paul kind of goes off on a tangent here for a moment. How does this relate to the rest of what he's saying? And perhaps it doesn't, you might conclude. 
But I think we should think otherwise about this verse. But just for a moment, we'll put that on pause and let us look together at verses 24 and 25. And note the connection here with verse 22. Remember what he's just said? He says, keep yourself pure, evaluate, don't hastily appoint the elder. And so we might ask ourselves this question, well, why is that? What does Paul mean by this? Let's further understand this. And Paul gives us further explanation here in verses 24 and 25. He says, Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Cannot be hidden. I think what Paul is doing here in verses 24 and 25 is he's giving further reason why or explanation to why Paul or excuse me Timothy and the church are not to hastily appoint elders. One reason being which we looked at is that they, you know, they don't want to be sharing in another man's sin. Rather they're to keep themselves pure. And in verses 24 and 25 then we see that the process of being patient and evaluating an elder keeps them from sharing in these sins because, he says, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. And so by allowing for a time of evaluation, it allows those sins to rise to the surface. But Paul starts here in verse 24 and says, listen, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. In other words, there are certain sins that the consequences of those sins or the, the outworking of those sins demonstrate that there's sin in this person's life. For instance, you know, drunkenness. Well, the consequences, the outcome of that are, are very quickly seen. You know, it's hard to, to hide, perhaps, you know, in most cases, when you're a drunkard, you know, thinking of the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, someone, someone that is, is, has a habit of, of showing anger, well, perhaps they can kind of hide that, but that's another sin which is somewhat clearly evident. You know, he, he kind of lashes out in anger constantly and, and uh, you know, demonstrates that sin in his life. Perhaps in some cases, Sexual immorality is quite clearly evident. You know, some woman becomes pregnant, can't really hide that for too long. Other times, maybe that, you know, sexual immorality can be hidden for a time, certain forms of that. But eventually, as Paul even writes, those sins surface. They rise to the surface. They can't be hidden forever. And so allowing a time of evaluation allows these sins to uncover themselves and rise to the surface. And sometimes that happens very quickly, Paul says, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later, meaning some of these sins are more deeply hidden. An elder who is living in sin may be able to hide some things for a time. In fact, there are certain sins that they are able to hide their whole lifetime. Well, that is from man, not from God. And it's only later, though, that those sins, you know, kind of surface. I can think of one specific man, mentioned by name, a well-known theologian, scholar, whose sins didn't surface until after his death. And it marred his ministry, his legacy. That can happen for sure that they can hide those sins for a long time and live in a position of eldership, yet not being qualified to do so. Now, some ask this question, what does Paul mean when he says, preceding them to judgment? Does God have in view, a, uh, or does Paul have in view the future judgment of this elder before God? You know, their, their sins are clearly evident, preceding them to the judgment that is to come. 
at the Bema seat, being judged for their uh, Christians, being judged for their works on earth? Or does Paul have some other judgment in mind? Perhaps the judgment that is done by the church and Timothy as they evaluate whether or not this elder is qualified to serve. And I, I take the, late, the latter view that uh, Paul does not specifically have in mind the future judgment, but rather the immediate uh, forthcoming judgment of the church and Timothy and the rest of the eldership as they consider whether or not he is fit for the ministry. And why do I take that? One reason being is that he's just talked about sins that are clearly evident. And so sins that are clearly evident immediately demonstrate to Timothy and to the church that this man is not fit for ministry. They judge him accordingly by his works, that he is not fit for the ministry. Of course, it's true enough that at some day, some point, this elder or any elder will stand before God and be judged. And perhaps those sins which would have disqualified him for ministry will at that time come to light. And he'll see a loss of reward for that. But Paul goes on then in verse 25, and he says, Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. If you look at verse 24 and 25 together, you can see uh, prominently there's some parallelism going on here. He talks about sins, some sins being evident now, some sins being evident later. And then he goes on to say, at the same time, likewise, there are good works. So the positive side to this is that there are some good works that are clearly evident, while there are other good works that are hidden. In other words, Timothy and the church, as you're evaluating whether a man should be appointed to the eldership, Consider this fact, on the positive note, that there are good works that are clearly evident. The kind of man that demonstrates that he is fit for ministry. He is skilled in teaching the word. He is conducting himself in a godly manner, above reproach. He is qualified for the ministry. And because that's so clearly evident, Timothy and the church should therefore not have any reserve about appointing such a man to the eldership. That doesn't mean that there's still not a process by which they evaluate them, you know, because, again, appearance can be deceiving. But after a time of evaluation, noticing those good works in him, in his life, they should have no reserve about appointing such a man. But then he says at the end of verse 5, in this parallel fashion that we've noted, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Meaning there are, there are some men who have good works or demonstrate good works, but those good works are hidden for a time. Think about the kind of minister, perhaps, maybe in a, in a larger church setting. You know, he's not perhaps uh, the, the senior pastor. He's not perhaps... You know, the, the guy in the limelight always, but he's faithfully serving behind the scenes. You know, certain churches have ministers that are f focused more on, on the care of the church and, you know, uh, you know, the visitation, things like that. And those things can often go unseen. You know, he's not, again, perhaps preaching as regularly as as the, you know, the senior pastor, the head pastor. And so those kind of good works are, are behind a veil to the rest of the church. And I think that's the kind of person that Paul has in mind, the, the kind of person that maybe isn't as outgoing, outspoken, but simply faithfully serving behind the scenes. And what Paul is saying here then is that if you allow for enough time of evaluation if you thoroughly watch his life and his conduct and his character, if you're intimately involved with his ministry, eventually, even those behind-the-scenes good works will come to light. 
And just like the man whose good works are just kind of, you know, on the projector for everyone to see, this kind of man is also worthy of being appointed as an elder as well because of his faithful ministry and work and labor. Now, let's take a moment in our time here, the remaining, to address verse 23. As I said, you might at first glance think, how does this, how does this fit within the topic of disciplining of elders and the appointment of elders when he makes you know, this kind of offhand remark about no longer drinking only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities? Well, I believe what Paul here is doing is he's clarifying a statement that he has made in verse 22 at the end. Remember what Paul says there? He says, keep yourself pure in regard to not sharing in another person's sins by hastily appointing them. But what Paul does not want Timothy to do is to misunderstand what he means by keep yourself pure. So he goes on to clarify what he means, or maybe we should say what he does not mean, by saying, keep yourself pure. And so he gives a two commands here, kind of a twofold command, but really two imperatives. He says, no longer drink only water, but use, the second command, a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities, your frequent infirmities. Timothy had decided clearly to drink only water and not use any wine. But this had some very detrimental and physical effects on his body. Paul says and notes and we're aware of this that Timothy was suffering because of this decision. And you might ask yourself this question. You might, you know, kind of shake your head and say, come on, Timothy, you know, aren't you being a little too sensitive on this issue? Why not have a little wine if it would help you? But I encourage us not to have that kind of mindset as we look at this and at look, and look at Timothy's deci- decision here. Rather, Take a moment and think about it in this way. Stop and admire the character of this young man. Here is a man of strong convictions who held a high standard standard of morality in order to be an example to the church in his position of leadership. Now, some believe that the reason that Timothy decided only to drink water and not use any other kind of liquids in his diet to hydrate himself and so forth. Some some take it to believe or some believe that Timothy's decision to do this was based on the fact that he had been influenced by the false teachers into the kind of practice of asceticism, you know, abstaining from marriage. Remember back in uh uh 1 Timothy uh I believe it's in chapter 4. He abstained, you know, they abstain from marriage. They teach to abstain from certain kinds of foods, a kind of, uh, you know, uh, self-discipline in order to merit some kind of spiritual virtue by abstaining from these things. And so some believe that, you know, Timothy's been influenced by them, and so that has then motivated him to only drink water. But I don't think that's the fact, or the reason, I should say. Rather, I believe what's happening here is that Timothy's decision to abstain from wine was motivated by his desire to disassociate himself totally from the false teachers who were drunkards. The false teachers either 
went against their practice, or I should say teaching of not drinking wine, kind of, you know, this asceticism view, or they disregarded their teaching and partook of it regardless. I think that is one of the reasons in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that Paul gives, has to give this qualification of not being a drunkard because that is exactly the situation they were dealing with in the church in Ephesus. It wasn't that these false teachers weren't partaking of wine. It was that, you know, in contrast to their teaching, they, or perhaps they didn't teach on it at all, they partook of the wine and became drunkards. So I don't think Timothy had become influenced by their teaching or practices. Rather, he wanted to disassociate himself with them and not partake so as to be counted among them. Pause and think about, again, Timothy's decision and the physical effects it had on him up until this point. To the detriment of his health, Timothy was compelled to walk circumspectly, even though it meant he was frequently sick. And Timothy would have probably willingly suffered longer had Paul not come in and given him a little pastoral and, you know, maybe we say fatherly guidance on the matter. And one theologian notes this. He says that by advocating the temporary curative use of wine. Paul, Paul is not asking Timothy to alter his commitment to the highest standard of behavior for leaders. Rather, he's trying to help him relieve some of the suffering that he's experienced for a time or, you know, in a temporary way here. Paul's command to use a little wine was meant to alleviate some of the sufferings that Timothy experienced Paul, in his theology, then we can see, was not against allevi- alleviating human suffering when possible. You know, uh, you know, he wanted the best for Timothy. Perhaps we might even say or, you know, uh, suppose that Timothy's frequent infirmities were actually maybe keeping him some from ministering as effectively as he could. And so Paul comes in and addresses the situation giving a little bit of pastoral advice and fatherly guidance, encouraging Timothy to use a little wine. But notice here, this is important, the purpose of the wine was not to encourage Timothy to exercise, you know, some Christian liberty, but it is strictly for medicinal purposes, Water in the ancient world was impure, just as it is today, and carried many viruses and diseases. You know, perhaps Timothy suffered from such a disease like dysentery or something of that sort. Frequently sick, weak, continually. And so adding a little fermented wine to the drinking water would have functioned to disinfect the water of some of if not most of, you know, what was in there, bacteria, algae, viruses, and other contaminants in the water at the time. And that addition of a little wine would thus be a means of, in their day and age, of water purification. Notice that even just a little, and that's a noteworthy word there, a little alcohol was sufficient in purifying the water. Just a little bit could help him tremendously. Today we have other means of water purifying. I did a little research because I'm, you know, I'm not up to date in all the water treatment, you know, processes, but they are out there and obviously being used. Water purification typically, you know, takes place at, you know, our water treatment plants and some of some processes of water purification today include the use of chlorine you know maybe that's what we're most familiar with but there's also the use of ultraviolet radiation and even hydro, or hydrogen peroxide as well amongst other means of water pure or for purifying water of course there are other basic means to purify water maybe 
if you've ever, you know, watched any kind of survival, uh, you know, video or something like that, you know, you take the water, you can boil it. Uh, there's other kind of, you know, methods to purifying. You know, now they have, you know, these straws you can kind of just stick right in the water and drink from that, and it has a means of purifying it and taking out the contaminants. And so there's more rudimentary ways of purifying water, but we have many sophisticated ways of purifying water today so that we don't have to use the means that were used in the ancient world, like wine. Now, unfortunately, this verse has been misused as an endorsement of social drinking. As I was thinking about it and studying this passage, it's, I, I, I brought in kind of in my mind the parallel of how unbelievers often use verses out of context. You know, do not judge lest you be judged. That kind of, uh, you know, narrow-minded, tunnel vision understanding of a text at, at the exclusion of all the rest of the text you know, that talk, you know, in that case about, you know, how we can properly judge people and motives and judge, you know, people's actions. And I think a similar thing happens here, where people take this verse and use it as an endorsement of social drinking at the exclusion of the rest of Scripture, which talks about, you know, the prohibition of drunkenness, the caution against the use of alcohol, Remember, though, as we look at this text, Paul does not have social drinking in mind at all. Keep these things in mind as you interpret the text. First, it was a personal note to Timothy, a parenthetical remark to Timothy to help, you know, maybe alleviate his conscience some that he can use this because it's physically going to help him. So it's a personal note to Timothy Addressing, secondly, a specific health issue, a medicinal problem here, for the purpose of relieving human suffering. And when you keep those three things in mind, it helps you understand better what is Paul talking about here. What is he endorsing? It's not social drinking. It's, it's a very specific problem that a young man named Timothy had that Paul is trying to help him through. A proper interpretation in its context does not lead to the endorsement of social drinking. There are numerous passages that prohibit drunkenness and caution against the use of alcohol. We have Romans 14, 21, of course, back in 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. There's other verses like in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, that warn against uh, the, the use of alcohol and what it, you know, the... Uh, the effects that it can have on the mind and actions of a person. Think about it in this way, though, too. Today we have plenty of other natural and you know, pharmaceutical means of purifying water and helping treat you know, stomach ailments and other frequent infirmities. We should not use medicinal purposes as an excuse to drink alcohol when we have all these other means to treat those problems in light of the dangers that alcohol presents. Paul did not have in mind the heart-healthy benefits of drinking wine. You know, there's often the argument, well, you know, drink a glass of wine and, you know, there's, there's these health benefits. There is truth to that. I'm not denying that. But maybe I could ask you this question, you know, maybe there's 10 other things you could do to help your heart, uh, you know, be healthy. And don't use this as, you know, the one way, well, you know, I want to have a healthy heart, and so I'm going to use this versus the other means, you know, of exercise and other foods that you can eat that can help in that way. Remember, this, uh, this verse here is specifically treating Timothy's issues, his problems, not a it's not talking about a long-term preventative against heart problems. There's a very specific reason that Paul gives. So as we close this evening, I want to ask you this question. How will you respond to Paul's commands in our text that we've looked at this evening? Your participation in appointing elders places you in a position like Timothy, 
in the church in Ephesus, you, each one of you, are to keep yourself pure by allowing for a time of evaluation and testing and observation of men who are aspiring to the office of elder before you participate in appointing that person. You are just as a part of that process as the rest of the church leadership. That, sh- that said, you, you should not want to bear the guilt and responsibility of appointing someone who must then later be removed from the office because of some disqualifying sin. Rather, as a church in the leadership, it is better for us to show patience and caution, giving time for true character to shine. I hope you desire to keep yourself pure in that way, not sharing in the sins of others. And finally, in light of verse 23 and its application to us, I think we should think on this. Are you resolved to have the character of Timothy? Put aside, you know, in one sense, the, this command to drink wine and ask yourself this. Why did Timothy choose not to in the first place? Are you resolved to have the character of Timothy who held strong convictions rather than look for excuses to justify a choice of satisfying fleshly desires? Are you wishy-washy, you know, looking at every corner to justify, well, I think this is okay, or I can do this because X, Y, Z. Turn that mindset around. Be like Timothy, resolved, having strong convictions, and in his case, even to the point of physical affliction. Let's close in a word of prayer this evening as we close. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we consider this text this evening, Lord, may we be careful, may we be cautious, may we be patient. Lord, we have a desire to, lead, to raise up leadership. We have a desire to see men join in the ranks of becoming an elder, leading the church. But, Lord, may we not be ones who act too hastily. Lord, we don't want to bear that responsibility, the guilt of, oh, seeing some person take on this position and then find out later on that there is some disqualifying sin in their life. Lord, help us to be determined to keep ourselves pure and to take actions that will help do that. And finally, Lord, may we be like Timothy. May we have his attitude strong in our convictions, not wishy-washy, not looking for ways to justify what we want to do in our flesh but be examples of the highest standard of Christ-likeness, Lord, we pray. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Thank you, Jansen, for sharing that. Just a couple of addenda, if you would allow me. On the uh, issue of um, appointing elders and not doing so hastily, that's a very relevant verse that he's taught on because uh, if you have a church that needs a pastor, what's a temptation that can come? Well, we need to get somebody in here more quickly than say uh, we might, you know, we don't want to spend a lot of time doing this. That can be a temptation. And that's multiplied by um, in situations where you have a fellowship of churches that have a lot of pastors that are older and retiring. And you're saying, you know, we're looking down the road here in the next five to ten years and needing in a particular fellowship that I'm aware of, 30 pastors. And you can be tempted to cut corners. You know what I mean? And take any, any warm body that will come along that wants to, you know, participate. But that can be problematic in the long run 
may seem like, oh, it's great, you know, check that one off, but no, you got to be careful. That's why we don't want to lay hands on anyone hastily, but take time. And, uh, and we need to pray that God will raise up laborers for this particular kind of harvest field and, and elders and pastors and churches because uh, the, the need is not just like in a fellowship overseas that I'm thinking of, but the need is here in the United States increasingly so and across the uh, across the world the other thing on the alcohol issue is interesting and i appreciated how jansen treated it uh our, our one of our friends uh, who can't come to the church um regularly is uh his name's al and he mentioned to me how they would have uh in their navy service in the navy they'd pull into ports and uh, there were places they went where the water was no good and so they would find themselves at the local bar trying to find whatever they could to drink. And obviously that, you know, probably suited most of the sailors just fine. <laughs> so they could uh, participate in the alcohol that they, uh, they wanted. But um, this kind of, and that was just within the last generation. This problem still exists today. Anytime you go to a place overseas, you have to be cautious about the water uh, how many of you have traveled overseas? So, yeah, just over half. Yeah, I know this brother knows about the water problem, huh? <laughs> yeah, so um, it's, uh, it's a real issue. You know, it's bottled water. It's, uh, you know, don't eat salad washed in the local water. It's, uh, you know, don't accidentally take any water into your mouth when you're taking a shower. It's, I mean all kinds of just little things you don't even think about, you know, and you have to discipline yourself. One, one mistake and you're, woof, you're down. <laughs> so um, it's, uh, it's, you know, and some, of course, when you go there and live there, you may just have to kind of uh, get through it and uh, get yourself acclimated to the quality of the water that's there with your stomach and all that. But uh, that's quite a thing. So uh, it is a real problem yet still today. I mean, you can imagine... Uh, Somebody that has no water, they're just very happy to have a well dug in their community and be able to, to haul water up from that well. Well, what's down in there? What contamination's gotten in there? What, what bird's done its business down there and all that stuff? You know, I mean, you just don't know. So, um, yeah, it's, there's, there's issues that are like this. But thankfully, we have better ways to purify water than just uh, using some alcohol. I have this. I had this picture in my mind when Jansen was speaking. Just imagining people using this to support social drinking. I'm sure they're sitting around the bar with their glasses of contaminated water, and they're just putting in a little bit of alcohol and then enjoying the social drinking. Right? I'm sure. Uh, that's not exactly how they're thinking about that verse. So, good work on that. All right. Well, thank you for coming tonight. God bless you. It's just almost 7:15, so we'll have a little fellowship and and be on our way tonight. Thank you again. Amen.